Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There are six words that I have inscribed above my computer, which I just mentioned a moment ago, which is, let me tell you a story. Walter Isaacson is the prolific, profound biographer of geniuses past and present. He has written about Ben Franklin, Henry Kissinger, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, Jennifer Duodna, and Elon Musk. And all of his works have become the definitive stories of these leaders. Walter was the editor of Time magazine, the CEO of CNN, and then the Aspen Institute. Today, he co-hosts the show, Amampur and Company, hosts a podcast, and teaches at Tulane. Walter joins me today at the CDM Studios in New York City. Welcome, Walter. It's so nice to see you again. After all these years, yeah. we go way back, Martha. It's so nice of you to have me Do on. you remember when we first met? I think we met in the Hamptons. It must have been... Well, let's not say how many years ago, but we met uh, on wonderful I don't mind talking about years because (laughs) that's all part of history. Yes, right. Yeah, we met probably at Mort Zuckerman's house Mm -hmm. or at one of those other fancy lunches (laughs) that used to occur weekly in the Hamptons. I kind of miss those days. I was a very young reporter for Time magazine, and I was from Louisiana. And boy, it was a different world for me. All of a sudden, you know, I'm with a bunch of journalists, and we're— having lunch in these grand houses with interesting people. And every weekend, there was another interesting group of people showing up. Mm -hmm. Well, you're the biographer of our generation. What attracts you to the subjects that you have written about? You and I worked together in some ways at Time Incorporated when you did Martha Stewart Living. And we had the ghost of Henry Luce in the building. He had founded Time magazine. And he said, always tell the story of our time through the people who make it. And so when I was at Time Magazine and then when I ran Time, I tried to put a person on the cover every week. And so you could tell the story. You mentioned 
James Watson. I remember, you know, doing covers on the people who were discovering the structures of DNA, doing many things. And so it was, I think Luce was once asked, are you creating personality journalism? He said, no, that's the way we tell history through people. That's the way the Bible does it. So I began to want to be able to write biography as a way to give people a glimpse into everything from science to music to art. Well, Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, Jennifer Duodna, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, what are the common traits between the people that you've profiled? I think that they're very, very creative. You know, people say you write about smart people. Well, no. Uh, You and I know from how many years in the business that smart people are a dime a dozen. They don't always amount to much. What matters is being creative, being imaginative, being able to think out of the box. So whether it's Leonardo da Vinci coming from this small village to the town of Florence and really helping to create a renaissance in both engineering and art because he thought different, all the way to Elon Musk. These are people who are disruptors, and that makes them disruptive, which sometimes is not very pretty sight, but it also makes them push, as Steve Jobs say, they push the human race forward. You started with historical figures, first of all, I think. Henry Kissinger, Ben Franklin. You have to remember when I did Henry Kissinger, he wasn't he was still very much active. Was he still in office? No, he wasn't in office. He had left being Secretary of State. This was in the early eighties, but he was still very much a player on the scene, as he was until his death, you know, a few months ago. Do you know where I met him? I sat on the Revlon board with Henry right. Kissinger. Right. What he did the a lot heck of boards. was he doing on that board? You know, he loved being a player, being in power. And he, I assume, uh, had a consulting contract, too, with Kissinger Associates. And, uh, you know, he wanted to always be a player. Yeah, it's interesting in celebrity, which you and I have watched over the years, there's a concept like there is in physics of half-life. Like, okay, somebody was Secretary of State. How many years will it be before he's half as famous? Well, Kissinger's half-life was very, very long, like 50 years. He was Mm -hmm. still almost as famous as he was when he was in office. And in great demand as a raconteur, as a storyteller, Mm -hmm. as a gruff voice. I remember remember trying—first thing I said to him when I sat, when I joined the board was, what are you doing here? You know, Henry, what do you know about women's makeup, for God's sake? It was very odd. Well, you know, the thing I learned about doing Henry Kissinger, which, you know, continues to this day with an Elon Musk, is people can be brilliant, but they can also have sometimes tragic flaws. Or they, as I felt with Dr. Kissinger, he did not have a feel for the values that are supposed to underpin our foreign policy. He had a feel for power and realism. Not democracy. Not democracy and human rights and those things. And when I wrote about him, he was very controversial. Half the people hated him. Half the people, you know, thought he was the most brilliant, wonderful person. And I tried to do a book that showed the good and the bad. Uh, He was not particularly happy with it. Uh, I think somebody asked him, uh, did he like the book? And he said, well, I like the title. But uh, same was Elon Musk. You know, they're very controversial. And in our day and age, we try to put people in binary categories. They're heroes or they're villains. We have to have a hot take. And no, sometimes humans are complex. Shakespeare teaches us that. Well, what about Ben Franklin? What attracted you to Ben? You know, after I did Henry Kissinger, 
one of his strengths was understanding balance of power diplomacy, being a realist. He could balance China off against Russia when he had the openings to both. And I was looking for the roots of what you would call realpolitik, you know, sort of European realism in American foreign policy. And we don't have that many. We have a lot of Woodrow Wilsons who make the world safe for democracy and care about values, but we don't have a lot of realists running foreign policy. And one of the ones I went back and studied was Benjamin Franklin, who during the revolution is in France, and he's playing a balance of power game with the Bourbon Pact nations, meaning you know France and Spain and the Netherlands, against the English alliance. And I realized that he wasn't just some you know, doddering dude flying a kite in the rain and saying a penny saved is a penny earned. He was interested in everything. So I decided, also, I decided to do him next, but also I will say, after dealing with Henry Kissinger, I said, okay, I need to do somebody who's been dead for 250 <laughs> years. Well, it's such a brilliant biography, and, and Benjamin Franklin is like a hero to so many of us. You know, Franklin was great because, as I said about Kissinger and as I said about Elon Musk and to some extent Steve Jobs, they're a mixed bag. You take the good and the bad and the ugly and the wonderful all together. Benjamin Franklin was just a nice guy. He brought people together. But his accomplishments appeal to you. Well, my daughter, who I think you've met, oh, yes. said all biography is autobiography. I think Emerson said it before she did. I said, what do you mean? said, well, when you're writing about Ben Franklin, you're writing about yourself, somebody who was an upwardly striving media person, you know, ran a magazine in a print shop, but also was interested in science and wanted to be involved in public affairs. And, yeah, I found Franklin to be an inspiration. Well, it's a very good book for anyone wanting to get into biography, modern biography. It's also a very good book for this day and age, not to tout it too much, when people forget why democracy matters. Yeah. And we're losing this sense that free speech, freedom of religion, tolerance. Tolerance. Yeah. Good word. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin, during his lifetime, donated to the building fund of each and every church built in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. At one point, they were building a new hall still called the New Hall. And he said, even if the Mufti of Constantinople were to send somebody here to teach us about Mohammedism and the Prophet Muhammad, we should offer a pulpit. And then he, in his deathbed, he's the largest individual contributor to the Mikveh Israel Synagogue, the first synagogue built. Mm -hmm. So when he dies, all 35 preachers, priests, ministers of Philadelphia link arms with the rabbi of the Jews and march with him to the grave. That is the type of democracy they were fighting for back then, and we're still fighting for and, now. And is under such siege right now right. with what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I would love to just republish parts of my Ben Franklin book and say, here is what you need to remember about what our founders gave to us. Well, starting with Steve Jobs, uh, with that biography, you move deeply into the technology world. Why the shift? You know, when I was at Time Magazine, we used to pick a person of the year, and we always tended to the president of the United States or the head of China or Russia or the head of the Federal Reserve. And I realized that people doing technology and science were changing our world in ways we'd remember 50, 100 years from now, more than whoever was 
Secretary of State at the time. And I look back at Time Magazine's People of the Year. We never did Philo Farnsworth were inventing television, or we never did even, I think, Watson and Crick for the um, structure of DNA. And so I started trying to get more scientists and technology. We did Andy Grove one year as Person of the Year for bringing us to the era of microchips. We did... For uh, Intel, that's for yeah, Intel. Yeah, Intel, and Dr. David Ho for doing the AIDS vaccine, and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos for bringing us into the world of online shopping. So other historians were writing about presidents. I mean, there were more books being done on Lincoln and Jefferson and Washington at the time. I wanted to do books where I could go out and report because that's what I was bringing to the party. I'm somebody who can go out to Silicon Valley and spend months there interviewing people. So I wanted to do that with Steve Jobs. Well, when you read that Google just had its 20th anniversary, 20 years only, Mm -hmm. then you realize that what you're writing about is so new and so different and changed the world in ways that no one ever imagined 25, 30 years ago. Yeah, there was an enormous three revolutions we've been going through. One was Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and people we all knew in the 70s who brought us into the era of the personal computer revolution. Then we have the life sciences revolution with the editing of the human genes and Jennifer Doudna, as we talked about. And now we're into a new revolution with artificial intelligence, robotics, electric vehicles, sustainable energy, and that's why I did Elon Musk. Right. You're right on the pulse of what's going on, Walter Isaacson, <laughs> as usual. You had an impressive career in journalism at Time and CNN, among other outlets. How much of the ethics, process, and goals of journalism apply to writing a biography? Well, when I went through Time magazine, we did, and you know, people push back on this, but we did try very hard to be objective rather than opinionated. Now, there were a lot of opinions in Time, but if I did a story about Bill Gates in Time magazine or even a story about Jimmy Carter in Time magazine, I was not bringing to it all of my biases and opinions. I was trying to filter those out. Now, can't be perfect at it. But we were doing what we thought was objective journalism. Nowadays, a lot of people do a much more opinionated journalism. They go on cable TV or they have podcasts to give you their opinions. I still, and you know, we talked about it before on my Elon Musk book, my job was just to report. When I was growing up in Louisiana, there was a mentor of mine, Walker Percy, and he said that two types of people come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. He said, for heaven's sake, be a storyteller. This world's got too many preachers. And so coming out of my time, whether it was at the Times-Picayune or CNN or Time Magazine, it's like I'm not there to preach at you. I'm there to tell you the story. You choose a subject. How do you approach these massive, dense projects? Well, there are six words that I have inscribed above my computer, which I just mentioned a moment ago, which is, let me tell you a story. And the point of that is to say it's going to be as if I'm at dinner, as if I'm hanging around New Orleans with my friends, and a story tends to be chronological. It tends to be about the growth of some idea or person. It tends to be about change over time and what happened. And so all my books are pretty simple. They begin at the beginning with 
Steve Jobs being born or Ben Franklin being born, and you go through the life. And whenever I'm trying to make a point, like— how Are they did, chronological? Yeah, they tend to be. Alice Mayhew, who you knew, who was my editor for 30 years at Simon & Schuster, in the very first book I did with a friend was called The Wise Men, and it was about foreign policy in the 40s. And she kept writing in the margin, all things in good time. A ticta. She would just uh, abbreviate it. And it was, keep it chronological. That's the way the Bible does it. If it's good enough for the Bible, it's good enough for you. And that's the way we live our lives, which is chronological. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags, and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Well, you know, I'm just about to start an autobiography, and I am taking notes, mental notes, as I talk to well, Walter you Isaacson. Because you're a storyteller by heart. I and, am. you know, whenever you want to make a point, like if I wanted to make a point about how did Steve Jobs go about choosing a design aesthetic. Or what, about, what about those awful colors that he chose? Yeah, old te- Pantone Remember? catalog colors. Oh, my gosh. Right. And instead of talking about these colors are awful, I say to myself mentally, let me tell you a story. And then I talk about going into the design studio, having the Pantone catalog, him getting mad that the blue's not blue enough. And, and the so orange you, isn't orange, orange enough. And, and the green, oh, that horrible green right. that he chose. And I tell you the story. As opposed, <laughs> I say, what happened in that design studio? How was he at the Whole Foods getting a smoothie? 
but yelling on his phone, that blue isn't blue enough. And then he kept saying, the white isn't white enough. I mean, you know, that was Steve. And by telling you a story, you see how the person's mind operates. So you will have a great time. Your memoir will be chronological, it'll be anecdotal, and it'll be driven by people. And photos. Oh, okay. Photos. I have so many great photos. I want to put a little—do you think photos are important? I think photos are very important, especially when, A, they tell a story. In other words, it's not just a mugshot. And secondly, when you make people feel you're a little bit behind the scenes. I don't like those pictures where it's six people posing against a step-and-repeat that says Time, CNN, on the backdrop. I kind of like the pictures in which you see— uh, Andy Grove huddling with Gordon Moore in the early days of Intel. Right. Now, have you been a Time 100 person yourself? Yes, I have, actually. You have? Yeah. Good. I know you were, but— uh, I was, but I just wondered—I I don't remember that you were, but that's— It was that, after I left Time magazine and my friends John Huey and Rick Stingle somewhat surprised me by one year saying, all right, because I had helped in the 90s invent— the Time 100 for a right. hundredth, I mean, for the 75th anniversary, anniversary of Time. And we had a big party on the hundredth, uh, I mean, 75th anniversary. But we created the hundred most important people of the century, and then we extended it. And so one day, John and Rick called and said, okay, you're going to be in it. And they got Madeleine Albright to write a nice little piece. That is so great. That's so great. I'm going to go look that up because <laughs> uh, because I think you absolutely belong in that pantheon of I don't think of that, but I think crazy people that have been Rick chosen. Rick Stingle, uh, the, one, the editor who chose it, had a wonderful book called Flattery. And I think it was a Michael Kinsley line, but he said insincere flattery is actually better than real flattery because it shows people care enough to, you know, go the extra mile to make you feel good. So I think that was sort of flattering that they did that, even though I don't think it was deserved. Well, when you go to interview in Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, how do you develop the trust that it takes to enable you to follow them around, meet everybody in their lives, watch and listen to their movements. When I was a reporter on the Times Picayune, my very first day on the job in New Orleans, there was a murder, and I was sent out to cover it, 5 a.m., and I had to go down to the payphone afterwards after the police gave me the facts, and I phoned it into the rewrite man, and he said, well, did you talk to the family? I said, well, no, you know, there was just a murder. In the he said, go knock on the door, and I had to take a deep breath, walk back down, knock on the door, and it just surprised me. They opened the door, and they wanted to talk. And I didn't have to ask many questions. I just sat there while they talked. Who but, was it, the father? The, yeah, the father, the mother. No, they who, pulled out. But the, who got killed? A daughter and a family. Oh. Yeah. And they pulled out the yearbook pictures, they, mm. many things. And I realized people want to talk if you want to listen. And I've always had the luxury, whether I was doing Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Jennifer Doudna, of saying, I don't want to do this based on five or ten interviews or 15 interviews. I just want to be by your side, days on end, 12 hours a day if need be, in the background, watching. And I had that luxury. So how long did it stay with Steve Jobs? Were you there before he got sick or before he knew he was sick? I had done Ben Franklin and Albert Einstein. And I was taking a walk with Steve Jobs, who had come to the a party that John Doerr threw for the Einstein book. And he said, do me next. And I thought, well, that's a 
bit full, you know, Ben Franklin, (laughs) Albert Einstein. I think I said, I'll do you in 20, 30 years when you retire, maybe. And then I was told, well, if you're going to do Steve, you got to do him now. And I said, well, I didn't know he'd been diagnosed. He said, no, he spoke to you the day after he'd gotten his cancer diagnosis. So that's when I realized I had this important calling almost to take the person who had done most to shape the world we lived in at that time, meaning brought us into Mm. the era of the friendly personal computer, of the iPhone, of the app economy, of a thousand songs in our pocket, retail stores, Pixar, digital animation of movies. It was time. And I was going to get to be up close and watch him and how he operated and go to the design studios with him and be at meetings with him and be at dinners with him. And I said, man, I can't, this is almost not only a duty, but a joy to be able to look at such a brilliant mind. Well, I I spoke to him during that time. I knew all those guys, on all the tech guys, because of my affiliation with a man who worked at Microsoft. And Steve, I remember calling him after he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and to ask him for a friend about his treatment and what what was working, what wasn't working. He responded immediately. He was so open. I found him. He was both the nicest person and the gruffest person at times. He could bite people's heads off or he could just have a spiritual bonding with people. Mm -hmm. And that's always the difficulty sometimes of writing, whether it's Kissinger or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, is that they're a little bit more vibrant than most people. They have more ups and more downs. Prickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried to capture it. I think some people very close to Steve said, well, you did too much on the prickly side of Steve. And some people say, well, you sugarcoated him too much. And I say, man, I just tried pretty hard. To be honest, I didn't have an agenda. Now, did Steve want control with his It was amazing to me that when we talked, I said, you know, I want to do it. I want to be by your side, but I don't want you to control the book. You don't get to approve it in advance. And he said, that's the only way it should be, because if it's improved in advance and he has control over it, nobody will pay attention to it. But he said, if it's done honestly, and I don't have control, it'll be considered more of a historical biography. The one piece of control he wanted was the cover. Really? And he picked that iconic picture of the cover. I think it was Albert Watson did the photograph. It's a white background. The black turtleneck. Black turtleneck. It was, and he wanted it in black and white. And he had his design team work on it, even the font, the sans-serif font. It just says Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. And he obsessed over making that cover almost like an Apple product, stark, beautiful, with simplicity being the ultimate sophistication. Other than that, he didn't, near the end of his life when he was sick, I read long passages to him. I read him the last chapter. I read him things that I thought he might be upset by because I I didn't want to upset him, but I wanted to give him the chance to correct it, like not giving stock options to some of the early employees or, you know, times he was rough. And he didn't push for any corrections, and he particularly liked the concluding chapter. Amazing. Just amazing. Now, that book was the inspiration for the movie, right? 
Yeah, for the Aaron Sorkin movie. Yes. I think there are a couple of movies, yeah. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, what about Elon? Did he release control, that control yeah, free? Yeah, I mean, so I was um, out visiting our friends Joel Klein and Nicole Seligman in Sag Harbor uh, a few years ago, just like in the old days when we used to hang around Sag Harbor. And I thought for my next subject, I really wanted to do somebody bringing us in the air, sustainable energy, space travel, robotics. Obviously, Musk was a choice. And so somebody put us together on a phone call. We had run across each other a few times. And we talked for two hours. I remember mm. being upstairs at Joel and Nicole's house. And I said, here's the deals with my books. Number one, I don't want to do it based on interviews. I want to be by your side for two years whenever I want to be. He went, okay. And then I said, and you have no control over it. I'm not going to let you read it in advance. He went, okay. Mm. So I thought, wow. And so I went downstairs, and there were a few people hanging out. And a few minutes later, everybody's sort of buzzing and said, what happened? He said, well, Elon just tweeted out, Walter's writing my biography. And I said, oh, I guess I've <laughs> grabbed the tiger out. by he the ex'd. tail. He exed yeah. out. Yeah. Was, did he have X by then? No, oh, no, no, no. no. Although he had started a company called X 20 years earlier, and he told me at the time, he said, someday I want to revive the original X, which was a became PayPal, but it was a payments platform that he thought should be connected to a social media platform. So what's it like on your end to have control like that? Do you feel all-powerful or, I mean, you're really setting the historical record for these guys. Well, you know, it goes back to And by to the way, I, was, I say guys, you only, you did one woman, right? So yeah, far. I did Jennifer okay. Doudna. Yeah. And um, I did a book called The Innovators, which I kind of like, but I don't think people read, which was about how teams of people do things. And it begins with Ada Lovelace and ends with Ada Lovelace. She's the framing device. But what it does for me when I feel, okay, I have control over the narrative is I do try to go back to this, let me just tell you the story, and let me just report it exactly as I saw it with no agenda, and you open yourself up to some criticism. You know, we talked about Kara Swisher, who I love and was on her podcast, and she's a great old friend, but she said, how come you didn't, you want my judgmental? You didn't say what a jerk he is. I said, I tell you the story. You can come to your own judgment. Right. So I think if I'm going to get that, incredibly close-up access, the value I can bring to the party is to just try to report it as honestly as I can, as up close as I can, and not filter it through too many layers of my own opinions, because there'll be really smart people from Cara to hundreds of others who will be able to analyze it and offer opinions But I feel that if I'm going to get that much access, I should just try to report the hell out of it. Well, I was looking back, counting the years between your books, and it's about three and a half, four years between Mm -hmm. a book. Is that what you give yourself? Yeah, I think so. It takes me about a year and a half or two years of immersing myself in a subject and then about a year to write it. Mm -hmm. In, In the case of Elon Musk, I was doing both at the same time, meaning I was writing while I was reporting. That's a big, fat book. Is that your biggest book in number of no, pages? No, they're all approximately the same. How many all pages? Oh, about 600 pages. But with Elon in particular, very short chapters because I wanted to recreate what it was like to be riding by his side, where you'd spend an hour focusing on a leak in the Raptor engine, then on 
unprotected left turns and full self-drive, and then on something that was happening on Twitter, and then with Grimes, his girlfriend, Claire Boucher, what was happening, and it's boom, 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 boom. And I try to keep it sparse, so it's not me doing a whole lot of my own pontificating. It's a fast-paced narrative. Does he have anybody telling him what he should or should not do? He doesn't have enough people around him who say no. And I know, you know, you've been a great manager. And when I was running things, I always tried to have strong people who would say, that's a really bad idea, Mm -hmm. or we can fix that idea maybe. And he does have Gwen Shotwell, who has run SpaceX for more than 20 years. And I describe in the book how she says no, which is the way to say no to Elon isn't just to say that's a dumb idea, no. And I tell stories. Or give give an alternative or something. Yeah, well, I mean, I do it through storytelling. I'll give one real quick, which is Elon wanted to force them to get Starship, this huge rocket that he's now tested twice. And exploded twice. Yes, and do it, and that's the way he does it. First time his littlest rocket at the very beginning— Three explosions before he got it right, but that's why he gets rockets up and Boeing doesn't Mm -hmm. or NASA doesn't because he's willing to take risks and then learn from them. And so he said, we have Falcon Heavy, which is then the heavy rocket that they were using to get communication satellites into high Earth orbit. He said, we're going to cancel it because that will force us to go faster with Starship. And everybody's in the meeting going, oh, my God, that's going to be a nightmare. And they text Gwen Shotwell, who's in her cubicle nearby, and she comes running in. She says, okay, I understand what you want to do. You want us to go faster with Starship, and I understand you. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You, you want to cancel off. it. Yeah. And so let's go through the numbers here. We have this many satellite launches. We have to get these military satellites up. Let's make a chart of what we have to do. And she just inundates him with engineering facts. And by the end of it, he says, okay, we'll keep Falcon Heavy going for a while. Yeah. It wasn't just no. He needs to be talked to. He needs to have raw engineering and numbers. That's how his mind works. Yeah, he's not very good at emotional or human interaction. He's, you know, the types quite well, but you give him a whole lot of data and he processes. He's a geek. He's on the autism spectrum. He is very headstrong, and I think if you've hung around people from— as you have from Microsoft to other places, you know the type. They should all wear the T-shirt that my old boyfriend, Charles Simone, had printed, Eminence Geek. Yes, right, right. I'm going to send you one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because you are a geek of biography now. You are amazing. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags, and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, 
Oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A sense of mission is a big theme among your subjects. Uh, what is the mission that drives your canon of writing? I think that the most important thing we can do as a species is learn how to be creative and to connect our creativity to humanity. And so I tend to want to write about people who connect the humanities to our technology, the sciences to our arts. Leonardo, of course, is the patron saint of that. That's what Vitruvian Man is. And how amazing that you started kind of with that. Well, um... So interesting. Yeah, but, I mean, you look at what Steve Jobs brings to the party. The modern He always ended his product presentations with a slide of a street signs that intersected. And it was the arts and technology, or sometimes the arts and the sciences. He said, at that intersection is where creativity occurs. So my mission is, I know I'm not going to be a Steve Jobs or a Leonardo da Vinci, but I can tell you the story about how creativity occurs. Henry Kissinger died last November. What came to mind when you heard that news? Did you read all the commentary? Yes. Yeah, I definitely read all the commentary, and it surprised me. Actually, it didn't surprise me, but I was interested that the controversies of his entire life were still there at the end. Oh, yeah. The obituaries were either fawning in praise, which I found— Or highly wrong, critical. —or war criminal-type wow. accusations. And it reminded me of what we talked about a little earlier, that when you're writing about a Kissinger, if you're writing about a Jobs or a Musk, that trying to put them into one category to say they're evil or they're saints. No, our day and age, we sometimes want to have a quick take on people. People don't read Shakespeare enough. And at the end of Measure for Measure, he says, you know, even the best are molded out of faults. And if you look at any of the, the greatest heroes in Shakespeare, Henry V, man, he kills all the prisoners, you know, and he's deeply flawed. And the villains, Othello is kind of complex. Uh. Lear, very complex. I think in the cable TV shout show blogosphere 
quick-take social media era. When you read about Henry Kissinger, you say, whoa, people haven't kept up with the ability to hold contradictory or conflicting ideas in their head. But if you are trying to understand people, there's sometimes a lot of conflicting themes. What surprises many people, and I'm always just flabbergasted, that an author like you, a writer like you, can dissect the work of an Einstein, for example. I mean, you made us understand. That was part of the mission. Which it was is, such a great mission, though, because you finish reading and you think, oh, you know, maybe I do understand what Einstein was talking well, about. Well, what Einstein did that wasn't great when he didn't do it intentionally was if you were in the era of Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, you were supposed to understand science. You would be considered a Philistine if you didn't understand checks and balances and Newtonian mechanics. Well, Einstein comes along and he makes science seem like you have to be an Einstein to understand it. It's relativity and uncertainty and chaos. Chaos. And I wanted to say, how did he come up with relativity theory? Tell me the story. Swiss patent clerk looking at devices to synchronize clocks. He's doing a thought experiment. If you're traveling really fast, what would look synchronized to you? Is it different than for somebody else? And he comes up with the theory of relativity. Why did I want to do that? I wanted to demystify science because those of us who love the humanities would think you were totally a Philistine if you didn't know the difference between, you know, Picasso and Rembrandt. Right. But we would happily admit we don't know the difference between a transistor and a capacitor or a differential equation or a gene and a chromosome. And so I wanted to do Einstein to say physics is really beautiful. And I wanted to do Jennifer Dowden to say biology is really beautiful. I'm going to explain to you how you would edit a piece of genetic code and how that would change it. And likewise— But you do it so well. Well, my did, dad did, was an engineer. I was a science lover growing up. And did you have people sit down with you? And well, when I did Einstein, Brian Green, whom you know, was enormously helpful. So was the late Murray Gelman. And I even took a math class to try to understand that, although I don't put the math in the book. <laughs> but to me, it's a joy. If I look at the people I've admired the most, I've written about, Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci— one of the things they have in common is they wanted to know as much as possible about everything knowable. I have this amazingly lucky thing in life, which is I actually can make money by learning new things. Right. I can learn so, what is special relativity, what's general relativity, what is quantum mechanics, try to explain it in a storytelling fashion. In such a good, such clear a way. way. And, and it helps us because if we're going to be part of a debate, about how we should edit our genes, it helps to know what CRISPR, how it works. Tell us about CRISPR. Well, Jennifer Doudna, to me, is one of the most delightful characters because when all of the alpha males are trying to do— How old is Jennifer? Jennifer is in her 50s now, I think. But she focused on RNA, when all the men were doing the Human Genome Project and focusing on DNA. And a group of women, Jillian Banfield, Emmanuel Charpentier, Kati Karichko, uh, Jennifer Dowd, thought, well, RNA is the more interesting molecule. It actually does work. DNA just sits there in our cells and, and curates it, information. Us. Yeah, yeah. It's us. But the RNA goes and 
figures out how do you build proteins from that information, and it goes and builds the proteins. And so you can use it to make a spike protein from a COVID virus that will become a vaccine, or you can use it the way bacteria do to cut up viruses and to edit the DNA. And so they come up with this amazing tool called CRISPR, which allows people to edit our DNA. And just last week, they got FDA approval to treat sickle cell, which is just a one-letter mutation of DNA that causes enormous pain and suffering if you have sickle cell anemia. And, and, so and now children, they can cure it. Yeah, and, so and now it can be cured just by editing the DNA and the stem cells of the person who has it. And eventually, and this is where we get into the moral territory, you'll be able to edit it in embryos and sperm so that you'll be able to make inheritable edits. So we will never have children ever again who have sickle cell. And that sounds great, but you get into moral territory, which is we're going to edit our babies. What if we give them the ability to carry more oxygen in their blood? Will I be able to get somebody who's going to be an Olympic athlete if I edit my children? I'm sure you will. And that's, The way it's going. And that's going to be the moral issue yeah. over the next 20 years is how much are we going to use gene editing, not just to cure diseases, but to enhance our children. And if you're going to be part of that debate, it does help to know what is a gene, what is a chromosome, and exactly how can you edit DNA. So you have to write another book about Jennifer. Well, it ends with her winning the Nobel Prize, and it ends with a picture of Victoria Gray, the first person to be treated for sickle cell anemia, and it ends with... Um, but she's nowhere near finished. You know, and that's sometimes why I go back in history, like, okay, now let me do a Leonardo da Vinci. It's because you know they're finished. But I think as a person who likes history and journalism, one of the things I can bring to the party is reporting about people who are still active. And so, yeah, there's a danger to that. Jennifer Doudna may invent something new. But I think people will understand the new era of life sciences we're coming into from that book. So all the subjects that you've covered, all these human subjects— what kind of childhood is there any? Are there any traits in their childhood yeah, upbringing and it's sort that, of that are similar? Yeah, almost all of them were misfits as kids, meaning they had rough childhoods because they didn't fit in. Whether it was Einstein and Kissinger, each growing up Jewish in Germany, whether it was Leonardo coming from a small village where he's illegitimate, his father won't legitimate him, he's gay, he's left-handed. And he goes from the village of Vinci to the town of Florence and has to deal with the demons of childhood. Elon Musk being beaten up all the time and psychologically abused by his father, coming with a lot of demons you see in Elon today, some of which he harnesses into drives and some of which drive him. And Steve Jobs going through an awkward childhood where he didn't fit in, adopted by a wonderful family, but one who had never gone to college. And... So I think that having a sense of being an outsider, of being where you don't totally fit in, can help spur creativity. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. There are a lot of people with misfit childhoods who turn out to be ne'er-do-wells and a lot of people uh, with pretty happy childhoods. 
But even Ben Franklin runs away from being apprenticed to his brother, famously, you know, three coins in his pocket, leaves secretly to Philadelphia. Now, I look at myself, I had a real happy childhood. My parents were the nicest people I know. And so maybe that didn't make me a disruptor. But it made me, perhaps somebody could write about disruptors. So that's a common thread in a lot of people I've written about. They've had disrupted childhoods, and they become disruptors themselves. So you you write these fantastic books. You take about four years on a subject. Your editor, how often do you meet with your editor? Well, with Alice Mayhew, whom you knew, it was a symbiotic relationship. You just go to lunch, you'd hang out on her back porch, and she would have read everything incredibly carefully, and she'd line at it and also tell you, you're getting boring here. You're not telling a story. You're, you're, you're losing your narrative. Oh. Uh, Priscilla Payton, who took over from her, I worked with Priscilla at Time Magazine for so long. Dear, dear friend. And now she's the editor. And she, she, did, it, she did the Musk book. She did the Musk book. And she did the second half of the Jennifer Doudna book. Oh, Alice died yeah. when I was doing the Code Breaker about Jennifer Doudna. And Priscilla's the same way. Priscilla can spot structural problems. She can spot bad leaps of logic. She can tell you when you're boring. And she's intense. And I love the fact that both Alice and Priscilla have an intensity to them that's leavened by a sense of humor. I don't know where you're going next, but I was going to ask you, it's my last question, what's the next book? Do you know yet? I think I want to go back in history again. As I say, after you've been diddling with a living person, it's like, okay, should we go in the Wayback Machine and take a breath? And and I've been thinking. I haven't totally decided, but I've talked to Priscilla about it, of doing Madame Curie, Marie oh, Curie. I would love that. Yeah, because Marie Curie is a much better scientist than maybe in your grade school books you thought of her. I mean, understanding that chemistry is basically just physics. It's about how electrons are going around in an atom and how they radiate and what radiation means and how you can fill in the periodic chart by uh, discovering things like polonium and radium and then applying it as she did and being a woman pioneer where she wins and she's the first Nobel Prize winner who's a woman. Incredible. But they won't let her into the Academy Francaise because they don't allow women in. How you and they won't allow her when she's growing up in Poland to go to university because they didn't allow women to go. So she went to an underground called the Flying University where they had to secretly meet women who were studying physics and chemistry. So it's about the true pioneers in the early 1900s. Well, I think we're ready for a book. Now, with the popularity of Lessons in Chemistry, that yeah. novel, and the TV show, which you probably haven't watched. No, but, but I... But, uh, but chemistry has all of a sudden become a very interesting subject. Wow, well, okay. Well, I'll tell Priscilla yeah, that. Tell because, she knows. She knows. Uh, because it's sort of the forgotten science. We've talked about biology and editing our genes and physics and microchips and Well, I'm in the kitchen all the time. And chem- chemistry is a very important science to people interested in cooking and creating. And, and There's chemi- a wonderful course that they teach at Harvard that you should be part of, which is called The Chemistry of Cooking. 
That's it's a uh, chemistry course. And that's what Lessons in Chemistry is all about, a, a, yeah. a chemist who becomes a cook and explains everything in chemistry terms. And, of course, Marie Curie wins her first Nobel Prize oh. in physics. Yeah. And then after her husband dies and she's having an affair with her husband's student, Paul Langevin, and it's a big controversy, <laughs> she gets a Nobel Prize in chemistry. She's the only person to have won two Nobel Prizes oh in science. Oh, boy, oh, boy, how fabulous. Well, it's just incredible what you're doing for us and and our knowledge of uh, people who are disruptors, who are important, who are in the public mind. And uh, I can't wait for your next book. I think that we have to celebrate the, your latest book, the Elon Musk biography, and I can only wish you well. Uh, it's great seeing you again. Thank you. And you're just such an interesting person to talk to. Thank you so much. You know, Benjamin Franklin had a trick. He made people around them seem more interesting. You do that very well, too. <laughs> Thank you. You're so nice. Thank you, Walter. Martha Stewart here. As a devoted pet parent and culinary expert, I ensure my cats and dogs are fed the finest nutrition. My premium pet food features air-dried protein inclusion, whole fruits and vegetables, and never any fillers. Martha Stewart pet food formulas make it so easy to satisfy the dietary needs and taste preferences of your pets. Now all six delicious formulas are 50% off. And there's convenient home delivery on Chewy.com. No more lugging heavy bags, and your pets will thrive on the optimal nutrition and great taste. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.